0: Hello, this is Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry, a series of conversations at the intersection of religious faith and public life. I'm your host, Chris Henry. In my vocation as pastor of a congregation, I'm often blown away by the faithfulness of people who have committed their lives to a purpose, a purpose greater than self, and who pursue that purpose with energy and passion. George Schroer is one of those people, I'm so grateful to be joined today by my dear friend and parishioner, a leader in our community, indeed a leader globally. George is the founder and chief dreamer of Building Tomorrow, a community-powered organization that harnesses the potential of local change makers to connect learners across rural Uganda with transformational education programming. George is a recognized and celebrated leader in the field of social entrepreneurship and a person of extraordinary vision, creativity, and most of all, deep compassion. George, welcome to Faithful Discourse. Thank
1: you. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. As an introduction to those who may not be as familiar with Building Tomorrow and the incredible work that you all are doing, can you share a bit of the vision and impact of the work you get to lead?
1: Sure. So for us at Building Tomorrow, we really believe in literacy and numeracy for all children. And we know the power of foundational learning and what that helps unlock in the life of a child. Yes. And so that is exactly what we're out to, to, to achieve. Um, in Uganda, we so far in this calendar year have worked with over 165,000 wow. youth. Wow. So basically every two minutes we teach mm. a new learner how to read, write, or do basic wow. math. Wow. And um, we're excited to be on this journey, doing this work, knowing that it's incredibly, the need for it is incredibly great, Mm -hmm. not just in Uganda, but throughout um, low and middle income countries and especially in Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. And um, and, and we're excited because we believe that some of the most seemingly intractable problems in the world, such as lack of access to education, can be solved with some of the most readily available solutions. Mm -hmm. And in our case, Mm -hmm. that's community members who we tap and for whom we're so grateful because they commit the time, effort, and energy to make sure that kids are learning.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Incredible. Uh, George, the conversations on this podcast are all about the place where faith and public life meet. It seems to me that the origin story of Building Tomorrow speaks to that intersection pretty directly. Uh, You have a degree from William and Mary, and that degree is in government and international relations and it takes both faith and hope to do what you do. I wonder if you could share a little bit of the story behind Building Tomorrow and how your own faith has animated its founding.
1: Well, I mean, you know, faith has a central role, I think, in the, the origin story of Building Tomorrow because I was seated at second as a college junior mm-hmm. and listening to uh, one of our own parishioners of you know, Jim Morris speaking about the work that he was doing leading the World Food Program. And I was really, I was really actually mesmerized by two things. One, the need that he was describing, Mm -hmm. which I think I knew or had knowledge of, but wasn't as intimately familiar as, um, as he had been sharing. And also fascinated by how this man was hip, like basically hopscotching across the world, uh, doing his, his, his work, not only as leading the World Food Program, but a, uh, a special ambassador for the U.N. for the HIV AIDS crisis in, in Africa. And so I, through second, was able to land an internship at the World Food Program. Mm-hmm. And I spent some time in Rome. Right. And then I went to Uganda. And one of the things that struck me when I was in Uganda, we were visiting one school in particular, and there were there were a lot of kids there who were happy and smiling and so forth, but their circumstances and sort of the surroundings didn't, look to me as, mm-hmm. um, as cheerful, perhaps, as one would expect. And one of the kids came up to me and said, you know, a lot of people like you, mzungus, what they call mm-hmm. uh, a, a white mm-hmm. person, not, not a derogatory term, yeah. but just yeah. an observation. Right. A lot of you people come and you take pictures of us, but we never see you again and we never see those pictures. Wow. Wow. And I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be the guy who was... Um, first of all, taking pictures, mm. um, but also the one that they'd never see again. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think that lodged in the back of my mind and became part of the motivation to ensure that whatever I did, however I did it, I could find a way to get back and make a difference at least in, in you know, for this particular place, if not greater. And that's how it all began, yeah. which is kind of crazy to think that that's the story and, and where we are today um, and what's happened in between. Yeah.
0: I feel like I know a lot of people who have um, transformative experiences like that and then time passes and you know they sort of return to a quote-unquote normal life and uh, go, you know, get an MBA and start a career in a corporate America or go get a law degree and start as a, you know, partner in a law firm or something like that. Um, one of the things that really strikes me about your story is how that initial spark of passion um, has carried through now for how long? How long has Building Tomorrow existed? Uh, yeah,
1: 17, 18 years, yeah. so a while.
0: Yeah, yeah. What What do you think enabled you initially uh, to make that transition from a really impactful experience. To I mean, you had to create an infrastructure at a certain level. Uh, you had to have enough, um, not just creative mindset, but enough connections and you know, really just stick to itiveness uh, to to persevere through the creation of an organization. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, I mean, I think if if anyone can be a poster child for sort of surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you to figure something out, I'm, I'm the one. Um, and and it's funny because I think the church community actually was really helpful with Mm -hmm. that in the first place, just in terms of finding people who had been down that road before who were willing to help someone who really had no idea what they were doing find a way to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, there are a lot of things that you have to do. There are, are, it's it's almost um, just demoralizing, thinking Mm -hmm. about all of the infrastructure that's necessary to be able to do this work. But I think the most important thing is, that you're doing it for the right reasons mm-hmm. and that you're doing it in a way that honors the people with whom you're working. And I think one of the things that has been so poignant, I guess, over the years is just the reminders that the engagement and the involvement of the communities we work with, the setup, the intentional setup of the organization to always be led by Ugandans mm-hmm. in Uganda, for instance, mm-hmm. which is, a, is very rare amongst yes. groups like us. Yeah. Um, is central you know that ethos is central to making sure that our work is a success and i think something that we're really really passionate about
0: yeah 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 so you've created sort of a an organization that you may be the leader of but you are by no means the the sort of center of or the the organization does not revolve Boy, around Well i sure hope
1: not cuz the thought <laughs> of that's terrifying and and i think that's why you know i think it's it's so true that you have to you have to surround an organization with a culture and an ethos that really reflects the values that you want to see right. come to fruition. And I think that's, I, I feel good in the sense that we've achieved that. Mm-hmm. And it's never easy because you have to keep working at it. Mm-hmm. You got to keep sort of making sure that you have a pulse on what's happening and that people um, are, resonate with what you're, to, what you're doing and how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, it's its really important, especially mm-hmm. um, in a space where people have long been exploited Um, and the, the shadows of colonialism still make it such that, um, there's not much agency and sometimes there's not much voice that's given to people who you're trying to, um, to, to work with.
0: Yeah. Tell me about your title, um, Chief Dreamer. Um, how did, how did that come to be and what does it mean to you to describe yourself in that way?
1: Um, well, (laughs) I just want to be memorable when I'm at like a networking event, <laughs> yes. and so if I give my card out to someone, yeah, I want mission them to accomplished. Be, yeah, I want them <laughs> to be like, "Oh yeah, I met I met a chief dreamer. That's yeah. cool." Because you know, director and some of these other titles, they're probably more accurate in terms of what someone does, but mm-hmm. they're not. They're they're more a dime a dozen. Mm-hmm. I also think it's a really good reminder for myself. You know, I mm-hmm. I sit at my desk each day and I look at my stack of business cards mm-hmm. and I thought about getting rid of them because we're in a day and age where we don't yeah. necessarily use them all that much yeah. but it's a great reminder mm-hmm. as to what needs to keep happening mm-hmm. you know today there are you know over 200 million kids mm. in the world who don't know how to read write or do basic math and if we stop dreaming on their behalf then that's a problem mm-hmm. because we're never going to get to a place where every kid is empowered every kid has the freedom to be able to think for themselves and to to have agency in the world and so the tag of you know, being chief dreamer is a consistent reminder to myself to keep doing that, yeah. and it it's also something that's I think important for the organization to know exists that there's there's someone who who is going to spend their time thinking about what we can do bigger, how we can do it better, and how we can, at the end of the day, reach more kids. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, as your friend and one of your admirers, I think. Um, In the church, we talk about a definition of vocation being the place where your gladness and the world's needs intersect, and I think that description, Chief Dreamer, is really your gifts and your gladness and the world's needs intersecting in in such a beautiful way. So, um, I I also think about how, um, of all the people I know well, um, you would be the person I would describe as the most globally-minded. You spend a lot of time outside of this country, Um, you spend a lot of time— Thinking about um, the world. Um, How does that impact the way you um, uh, the, the way you think about your vocation, the way you think about your identity as a Christian living in the United States of America in 2023? How how are you changed by so many experiences outside of kind of the bubble of Indianapolis of the United States?
1: Well, I think the first thing is you just have a recognition of how grateful you are for Mm -hmm. having a chance to see so many different, you know, I've had the chance to see a lot of different things all over the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be in different places, different countries with different people. Um, And I think there's two things that sort of strike me often. The first is just like, there's so much consistency in humanity that we oftentimes are so quick to put up guardrails and just assume that there's so much difference. And I think, you know, we're we're having this conversation in the midst of a time when people are very quick to jump to one side or another and to be, we're seeing it sort of on full display in terms of the defensiveness with which people um, want to defend one culture or one people. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame because um, wherever you go in the world, people are trying to just live... A happy and a healthy life. And I think that's at the core sort of who we are. Mm. And I think also it's a great, um, I was thinking about this over the last couple of days. Um, I feel like wherever I go, there's just a, there's a shortage of grace mm. that we've somehow mm. depleted our reserve and we have to befriend grace again in some wow. way. Wow. And, and that's a really, um, You know, to be sort of grace-deprived is a real state of unhealthiness, I think. And so I think one of the things that I find rewarding about travel and sort of being able to see things through different lenses is that while on the whole, I think we've, as humanity, we need more of that grace, there are certain places, there are certain pockets. And I'm especially reminded of this when I'm visiting our own work in Uganda. Mm -hmm. That there's a lot more of that in some of the most unsuspecting places mm-hmm. and that we we ought to be doing a better job of lifting those up mm-hmm. and, and trying to, to pull from the well yeah. that's around us. Yeah. Um, it just might not be right in front of us.
0: Yeah. Gosh, the, the, the description of befriending grace or being grace-deprived as sort of um, a, a need slash opportunity strikes me. Um, I've thought a lot about how um, the, the way that I've heard it described is sort of kindness ladders up. So I- interpersonal relationships, genuine friendships, um, conversations that go deeper than surface level where you discover some area of commonality that you maybe didn't suspect initially, um, that where we are grace-deprived uh, interpersonally, um, you know, society is nothing more than sort of a reflection of a series mm-hmm. of relationships among people right um and so what what does it look like to listen better what does it look like to look for grace to look for points of commonality um
1: yeah and there's so much of that i mean i just feel like we you know i see it all over the place and it's um and so in our our own little ways what can we do to sort of reinsert that into the world and and sort of remind people that it exists
0: right right Uh, George, something else you often uh, remind me of, whether you know it or not, um, is I feel as if we live in this constant sort of um, uh, the contradiction of scarcity and abundance. That you know there is no lack among us that the abundance um, could not fill, and yet there is extraordinary scarcity. Even in your initial description in this conversation of what Building Tomorrow does, you talk about needs that can be met by abundant resources, and for you, that's literally, it's communities. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you think that same dynamic plays out? Um, You know, you you can talk about the way uh, Building Tomorrow meets need with existing opportunity or need with existing abundance, but do you feel like that that also ladders up, that there are you know, kind of other examples of places where that's true?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the funniest things that, one of the funniest questions I get oftentimes is around, like, you know, you know do, you, do you send teachers to Uganda? Or mm-hmm. Do you, mm-hmm. you know, do mm-hmm. you take some of our curriculum in there? And right. Right. There's a sense of entitlement that comes in with some of those questions because the belief is that you, you represent the best or what's around you represents the best. Right. And in reality, what I would love to do is to take every single person who asks that question and anyone who has the desire to actually go see how communities mm-hmm. respond and take care of their own mm-hmm. in a place like Uganda, mm-hmm. because it's exactly what we should be doing here. Mm. The way in which we see, and, and this is not something that we do. This is just something where we're, you know, building tomorrow is the tap on the shoulder. Mm-hmm. It isn't the actual... You know, it, it, we're not the work itself, right? Yeah. It's it's yeah. bringing people to a table and saying, "Hey, we could really use you," mm-hmm. and then from there, that's sort of where the magic happens. And I think this is something that I wish we had a lot more of around us, sort of in this immediate bubble, right. because the way in which community rallies around um, its itself mm-hmm. and its mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. in so many other parts of the world. Yeah is so rich and so abundant and so life-giving. We seldom see that here. It's very rare in, in I think, my own experience to sort of experience Mm -hmm. that here. Mm -hmm. But it's such a gift. I mean, that abundance is there and it's it's plentiful. Um, The ways in which the sacrifices people make, the ways in which uh, individuals sort of devote themselves to sort of advancing this notion that every child should should have access to basic education, is a page out of the book that, you know, is a page we ought to take out of their book and bring here. Um, and and so I think this, this perception of living in abundance is, mm-hmm. is a misguided one. Mm-hmm. We have to check ourselves often because mm-hmm. there's an air of pretentiousness uh-huh. with uh-huh. which we sort of present to the world that we come from the place where things are figured right. out right. where things right. are the best. Yes, yes, um, yes. And that's not the case. Right. And that's perhaps one of the most beautiful learnings of mm-hmm. travel mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. the ability to sort of see that actually maybe we ought to be, yeah. maybe we have a lot that we need to import. Right. And
0: Yeah, there's some arrogant assumptions that go along with uh, we are the people of abundance.
1: Yeah, and I think this like notion of consistent exportation is mm-hmm. – Sort of the a rem, another remnant of colonialism, right? Mm-hmm. Like the the mm-hmm. belief that the only thing, the only way that this can be solved is with something coming from here, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. be it anything from someone's used T-shirt yes. to yes. a you know a teacher, right? Um, right. And an anything answer. in between, right? Yeah. Like it it's it's um it's a it's a lesson that we haven't yet learned collectively yeah. as well as we should.
0: Yeah, I think I know the answer to this, but how how do you sort of gently but firmly respond to that assumption, because I I feel like even within sort of, say, the city of Indianapolis and congregations like the one you and I are a part of, um, that sort of latent assumption exists. And it's it's not that it's... um, It's not that it's intentionally arrogant or intentionally dismissive of the other. It's almost insidious. It's 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 just sort of the air we breathe. Is well, if there's a problem, um, then we have a wand that we wave over it. So when you get a question like, you know, well, do you send you know all of our educated people over to Uganda mm-hmm. to teach all of the people who don't you know understand right. what we understand? What's what's a way of reframing that perspective without kind of uh, I don't know, undermining the relationship or belittling the very person who you're trying yeah. to connect well, with. Well, maybe
1: you need to ask some of the people <laughs> for whom I've answered that question, in hopes that I haven't belittled them. <laughs> but you know, I think the, I, I think in all things you just try to focus on the good. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the answer mm-hmm. to that question is, well, let me tell you about what yes. we see right. that works. Right. And that's a, I think it's a healthy way for mm-hmm. people to begin to appreciate the fact that maybe they haven't. Thought of things, and I, I agree with you that the intention generally behind someone leading with this this sort of line of of questioning is not one where it's knowingly they're not trying to project sort of an arrogance that 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 yeah, may no. come across, but it, right. it's um, us like holding a mirror up mm-hmm. r- really to the world in which we live. Right, mm-hmm. we we do have unfortunately we live in a world where people think that we should have the best or that we do have everything around us that Mm -hmm. should be um, mirrored or emulated by others. And so oftentimes those questions are really a reflection of society and not an individual's sort of own thinking. I think there's a lot of joy sometimes Mm -hmm. in answering those questions Mm -hmm. because in many cases, you're peeling back the curtain on a world that someone may want to learn and get to know a whole lot better and just has never had a chance to see.
0: Right, right. I'm thinking about communities of faith, and um, what would you say is kind of the responsibility of a community of faith— in a time, particularly a time of, of deep division. I think some of what you've described in terms of other person worldview taking or perspective taking um, is so necessary. And from my perspective, faith sort of compels that. I think that's the story of Scripture. I think that's the story of our theology is, you know, being able to, to take the perspective of someone else to understand someone else. But what do you think is sort of our responsibility or the obligation placed on us when we say we are people of faith?
1: That's a really tough question. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's tough because I think, well, maybe maybe it's not so tough. Maybe, maybe really what needs to happen is we just have to listen a little bit more. And I think oftentimes we probably don't do that very well, or we do, don't do it enough. Yes. Um, We don't listen enough to know what's needed. Oftentimes it's a projection of what we think is needed somewhere, and so that's how we sort of coalesce and try to support. I I think if there's anything that I've sort of learned about the beginnings of Building Tomorrow, it was really sort of propped up by a faith community, Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of people in different ways, whether it was filing for taxes or Mm -hmm. figuring out how to set up a bank account or sort of all the crazy things that needed to happen to get Building Tomorrow up and running. Mm -hmm. There was— there was this willingness on people's part to to actually do what they were good at for the greater good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And sometimes maybe we think a little bit too much about this, but I think ultimately that's really where mm-hmm. communities of faith can also sort of rally around. Like, what is it that we as a community of faith can do to advance the greater good? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of potential there that oftentimes goes untapped. Maybe that was a really bad answer to your no, question. I, no,
0: no, it feels right to me. I mean, I think it goes back to the vocation question that um, we are not all called to start international nonprofits that serve hundreds of thousands of, of kids in, in um, Uganda. But each of us has been given some sort of skill that can contribute to a good beyond our own edification or the, the providing you know, for our own family. And I think the way that you, I think about, yes, the origin story, but also the way that you continue to do that where you are inviting people to use whatever gifts they've been given and it doesn't have to be um, the gift of traveling to, to, to Uganda. It doesn't have to be the gift of writing a big check. It doesn't have to be that, you know, there are sometimes there are unsuspecting gifts, I guess, that um, are below the surface or, or maybe that we don't even recognize as gifts until somebody asks us to use them. Yeah, I mean, I think so so
1: one one sort of i don't know thought that comes to mind is communities of communities of faith I think are mimicked a lot mm-hmm. in the world, and the way we mimic those in sort of a kind of the the mainstream ways we call them we call them incubators
0: yeah yeah
1: right we try to surround ideas with people who can see those flourish and be successful and so forth and right. in a way, I think communities of faith are incubators mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. perhaps they were sort of Mm -hmm. original incubators Mm -hmm. in the sense that people can, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think about a lot of fellow members at second and others who have come to a group of people with an idea and have been able to find the connections necessary within that community to be able to advance it. Right. Whether it's something in the community, whether it's something abroad, but that's sort of the mentality that, that they've taken. It's like, I'm going to leverage these people who have a common, you know, who, who, sort of are coalesced around some of these ideas that are central to, to everyone who's here. And let's see if we can proliferate. Let's see if we can, what we can do here can actually take off and, right. and be successful somewhere else. And I think that's, um, it, it's an it, to me, it's sort of an interesting ex- thought experiment to think about what communities of faith look like as incubators yes. of good in the world.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. That leads me to think about the question of institutions. And, um, you know, you, what you have done is create an organization. Um, the The church exists as an institution in the world. Uh, we are living in a time of high distrust among among institutions. Um, I have one of your T shirts that says "Keep Building," and I think all the time about you know, building means we're creating something we're we're uh, that's that's larger and more um, complex than just an individual idea. So, incubator as a starter. Um, but, what do you think about kind of the role of institutions in a time of such tremendous distrust of existing institutions? Uh, do we do we sort of tear them down and start over? um is it Is it a tweaking job that needs to be done, or how do we how do we build institutions worthy of trust?
1: Well, institutions are people, mm-hmm. and people are joined by relationships. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, you can call whatever it is, you know, you can call anything an institution, you can call it an organization. But at the end of the day, people invest their, they invest their trust, they invest their faith in people Mm -hmm. and the people who are around them. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe the better way to describe what you're sensing or feeling is that there's a breakdown in, in relationships that, that preceding the breakdown of perception of an institution, I think comes the breakdown of Dialogue mm-hmm. and of relationship and being in community with people, yeah. and when that happens, then all bets are off, mm-hmm. and that's when you start seeing things sort of ripple effect. And I, I think this is this is a lesson actually that I um, I think is I I've, my sort of own teaching has been informed by our work. Mm-hmm. Um, we have you know we have eleven thousand what we call community education volunteers who do the work that we do. In person, and a lot of times people say, well, why would they want to do that? Hmm. Why would they want to give their time? Volunteer, yeah. And hmm. I wonder if I had been doing this work 20 or 30 years ago, if people would ask me the same question. Right. And I'm not sure they would. Right. I don't think that they would. But to me, that's a really, thinking about why that question gets asked is a real mm-hmm. indication to me that we, we don't see the value here in giving of our time and in in being somewhere being present in a place that maybe feels unfamiliar to us and as a result we we start to break down
0: yeah so it's almost hard for people to believe that anyone would just freely give their time away Like, why why would people volunteer? Yeah, it's a
1: complete sort of, um, it feels like a complete anomaly. It feels like there has to be something in exchange Mm -hmm. for that time. Mm -hmm. And I always sort of, I don't want to say a clap back, but I always come back with the fact that making the assumption that someone can't or doesn't want to volunteer their time Mm -hmm. is a bigger disservice to that individual and their own dignity than Mm -hmm. applauding the fact that they recognize the value of doing that,
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and so for me, I, you know, I think in this, in the context of this conversation, I just think that it's it's relationships, it's yeah. it's people that have stopped investing in one another, right? And because they've done that, the floodgates open to right. to all kinds of distrust. Yes, we feel like it's this huge thing that's intractable. Again, we can't solve it, and just like the work that we do, it's actually. Mm-hmm right within our reach. It's right in front of us. The solution for that isn't, we don't have to look very far.
0: Yeah, I'm finding so much resonance. I've been reading a piece on, uh, I think it's titled Vanishing Neighbors, but it speaks to this sort of inner ring, middle ring, outer ring relationships. And the inner ring is your immediate family, your most trusted friends. And, you know, for the most part, folks still have deep relationships with that closest inner ring, outer ring acquaintances, virtual friends, people you, you know, communicate with, uh, you know, online or maybe see a couple times a year or something like that. Those relationships are, you know, generally still exist or particularly at the virtual level, you, you know, maybe you have 2000 virtual friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's Esther Esther Perel who says uh, we have a thousand virtual friends and no one to watch our cat when we go out of town. <laughs> it's that middle ring, yeah. right? Um, and so this, this author is describing that as our vanishing neighbors, that we do not have the kinds of relationships with neighbors, colleagues, friends who aren't on that Kind of inner ring, and I think what you're describing is institutional breakdown. Is is the breakdown of those that level of relationship?
1: Yeah, precisely. Yeah. I mean, that's what makes institutions great. It's not you know, second has a great building, but people don't go there for the building; they Sorry. go there for the people. For the people. And the and we, you know, we. Um, I mean, I dare make the you know maybe you have to edit this at some point, but I dare make the comparison. I mean, it was just in Washington D.C. this morning. And there's a really broken institution mm-hmm. there right now. Mm-hmm. And it's, yes. you know, last time I checked, the scaffolding was down and the Capitol looks like it's in great shape. <laughs> right. But it's right. all about the people. Right. And it's a, the people within and the people who are trying to broker these agreements and these, you know, the, the a way forward. Yeah. And there's no trust. Right. And so how do we expect that in this day and age when we're not willing to sort of make those investments and we don't give ourselves the time to make those investments... Right. That we'd be in any better shape or in any better place. Right.
0: Yeah. And, and the role of churches. Um, it makes me think of the story about the kid who uh, says to his dad, um, Why does Mr. Jones go to church every Sunday? And the dad says, Mr. Jones goes to church to see God. And the kid says, Dad, you don't believe in God. Why do you go to church? And the dad says, I go to see Mr. Jones. (laughs) Sometimes the community is itself the gift we most need. Yeah. A place to go, a place to be together. Yeah. Agreed. I want to ask um, a closing question. I could talk to you for, for hours, um, but I'm thinking about the word tomorrow in building tomorrow uh, and particularly this this question of hope. Um, one of the things that you and I have in common in addition to being close in age um, is we both are father to two sons. Um When I think about the reason I do most of what I do, it's because I want my kids, I want the world to be worthy of my sons when they are old enough to sort of take their place in leadership or or, um, in service to the world. Um, What about your work or what about what you see through your work keeps you hopeful?
1: Well, I think I would come back to those relationships and the fact that there are people who we, you know, who, who are clamoring for the opportunity to find some way to give back and to be helpful. And especially considering that for a good number of those, they're showing up to provide an opportunity that they never had themselves. And I think that mentality, you know, we're consistently reminded every day in our work about this notion of paying it forward and sort of what that what that looks like and the strength of that. And I, I just get real jazzed when I think about how much brighter tomorrow looks every day for the kids that we had, you know, there'll be at the end of today, there'll be probably about 520 kids who we didn't know yesterday. Wow. Wow. And their tomorrow is going to be a little bit brighter because they have the freedom to think they have access to tools that are going to be fruitful for their life mm-hmm. and that's an awesome place to sit it's 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 rewarding work to be part of mm-hmm. uh, i know i'm not going to be uh, i'm not up for father of the year anytime soon um, and hearing Still your <laughs> hearing your <laughs> comment made me made me think about that but the i think for me it's just the fact that how we can equip people to be successful is so easy in a lot of ways. And what a shame if we don't actually do it. You know, I look around today and all the conflict that exists in the world. And the thing that keeps me up at night is the fact that there are, in all of these conflicts, there are kids who aren't getting what they need to break that cycle of conflict so that when the next generation comes of age, their first instinct is not conflict. Yes. Yes. And so I think for as long as that's the case, that's why we work for tomorrow mm-hmm. because we don't want to see, and maybe this is, goes to your point about a, a world that we don't want to leave behind mm-hmm. for our kids, but how mm-hmm. cool would it be if we could leave this world knowing that conflict has been eradicated? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're not there yet. We got, no, we got a lot of work no, to do. Not.
0: No, we're not. But what a shame if we don't, Do our part. Yeah, you know,
1: we're biased, but we think that it comes down to making sure that every kid, no matter where they are, has access to the fundamental things in life, literacy, numeracy that you and I did and allowed us and and, uh, have allowed many of our friends and family to be successful. Yes.
0: That's why you're the chief dreamer, George.
1: Yeah, well, there's a lot to live up to in that title, but it's a good reminder every day.
0: You, uh, when I think of what and who makes me hopeful, you're you're on the list. So grateful for what you do and we grateful introduce that we get to introduce you to some new people. <laughs> <laughs> and grateful that we get to be friends. Um, I'm grateful for this conversation, um, for the thoughtfulness of it, and uh, particularly for you taking some time to to share with us today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Please subscribe, share with a friend, and let us know what you'd like to hear in future episodes. I look forward to continuing the conversation on the next Faithful Discourse with Chris Henry. Until then, take care of each other.